you know, we really need to do what we're doing. I love every time the body of Christ gathers together, whether it's in our homes or here at our gathering place. We need to to sing our hearts out to the Lord. We need to express our, our adoration and devotion to him. And we need to hear the word of God. And we're going to do that now. And uh, today really did become a, a mission Sunday. God orchestrated that. Amy Lucas is over in Life Builders right now talking about her mission in England. And uh, we've got the goods with us. And they're going to be sharing third hour in Anchored. And then we've got Eric Smith with us. And there's a reason why I wanted Eric to come and preach today. And I've known him for nine years. He was the first missionary that I met here at Grace. A couple of weeks before I started here in 2006, I was bringing some books over. And he and I set up a meeting. And uh, instantly, I loved this guy. And one of the things that strikes me about him is his humility. And it would be easy for you to say, well, all Christians are humble, if that were true. You're humble, and I love that about you. And Eric is humble, and I love that about him. He loves the Lord Jesus. He loves the Word of God. He loves people. And it is very evident, very evident. And he is going to be preaching one of my favorite passages in Matthew today. We've had a partnership with Eric for a long time, since 1984, as a supported missionary. He's our longest supported missionary at this point. And it even goes back further than that, and he's going to share that with you. But please welcome Eric Smith. Well, thank you, and good morning to all of you. I know that uh, because I'm here so infrequently, there are probably quite a number of you who have not met me and don't know who I am, and that's fine. Uh, That's not a requirement by any stretch of the imagination, but I do want to say to all of you, whether you know me or not, thank you for the many years that you have partnered with my wife and I in the ministry that God has called us to. And I wish I had time this morning to give you the full prospectus on your return on investment But I can assure you that much is happening around the world because you care, because you pray, because you've partnered with us, you've encouraged us at times when we needed to be encouraged. And some of you have even given us, uh, shared your wisdom with us and uh, helped us do things uh, at times when we didn't know how to do them. Um, And uh, we're very grateful for your partnership with us. I will tell you that um, we were in the Philippines for 23 years. We're with an organization called OC International, and uh, based in Colorado Springs. And we were with them in the Philippines for 23 years. Um, and that, when we arrived there in 1984, there were about 7,000 churches in the country, and they had this goal already established of uh, becoming uh, 50,000 churches by the year 2000. It was called the Dawn Movement, Discipling a Whole Nation. And um, we helped with research. We helped with sports evangelism. We helped uh, coach church planters. We did just about everything that a missionary can do at one point or another. And um, 
over the years, in those 23 years, those 7,000 churches became 83,000 evangelical churches around the country, various denominations, but all teaching the scriptures. And the growth has not stopped. In fact, it's become part of the DNA of the church in, uh, in the Philippines. They don't know how to carry out uh, the Christian life and fulfill their responsibility without evangelizing and establishing new churches. And so they are now doing it, um, doing it, uh, continuing on even though we're not there. And that's great. And uh, another interesting fact is they started sending their own missionaries, Filipino missionaries. And uh, they've established their own mission boards. There are 53 mission agencies now in the Philippines, all sending missionaries. And there are about 30,000 Filipino missionaries supported in one way or another uh, from the Philippines. Many of them get jobs overseas and uh, use, uh, do missions work on the side, but that's okay too. It's getting the job done, and people are involved in the whole world. And we're grateful for what the Holy Spirit has done with us and through us and through you through us uh, all around the world. So thank you for being our partners. As I travel and visit uh, pastors in this country, I hear a lot of woe is me type of talk about what's going on in the United States. Churches are not growing. The upper middle class Anglo-Saxon church seems to be losing its commitment to missionary sending. And many pastors are lamenting the changes that are taking place in that church. And honestly, I think I can... I can say to them that there is good news even in the United States and particularly in the ethnic communities of our country. Uh, I work with Mongolians now as one of the things that I do. And there is a Mongolian congregation. There is a Mongolian colony, I guess, in Denver. There is an evangelical church among those uh, Mongolians, and they are very active, not just in reaching Mongolians, but uh, Russians and uh, anyone who, uh, Chinese also, North Chinese, uh, anyone in that uh, Denver community that has some relationship to Mongolia. So things are happening in this country, and that's not all. Uh, our field in Brazil it used to be a field. It's no longer a field. They're very independent. They're starting to send missionaries to the United States to work among Latinos on the eastern seaboard. So uh, we, we now have OC missionaries from Brazil carrying Brazilian passports in the United States, uh, reaching our Latino communities on, on the East Coast. So there are all kinds of exciting things that are going on around the world. Let me just tell you one thing that I do do. Uh, this is one among many hats that I wear, but it's the one that's most important to me. In 2009, we had 11, uh, 10 different uh, former fields, OC fields, where we had sent American missionaries under OC to work. Ten of those came together and they said, um, you know, this is nice, but we're ready to send our own missionaries and we're starting new mission agencies and we're sending them on our own and all that. But there are a few that feel a kinship to OC International. They like, they like the way you work they like what you do. They like the fact that you come alongside national leadership and you motivate national leadership to expand their vision and to think bigger than they're thinking. And they want to be a part of OC International. Well, at the time, we had no platform, no vehicle for getting those people into our organization. And so in 2009, we formed the OC Global Alliance. 
And uh, that it now consists of 11 nations that are all contributing missionaries into OC's world. And I work with the heads of all 11 of those. I foster, I try to help find opportunities for them to collaborate. And that's happening uh, particularly in East Asia, but it's happening really all around the world. So one example is the reason why I'm here today. I'm on my way, I'm passing through Los Angeles on my way to Bangkok, Thailand, and uh, I'm going to be spend 10 days in Thailand in five different cities talking to 150 pastors there with two colleagues, one from the Philippines and one from Myanmar, and uh, we are going to talk to these pastors about what it's going to take to establish and sustain an indigenous church planting movement in Thailand. And they are asking the, quest, the practical questions about how to make this happen because it's happening in the Philippines and Myanmar. So I get to go along and kind of uh, moderate this conversation with these people. So that's why I'm here uh, today, and I'll be leaving tomorrow for Bangkok. So that's, uh, that's what I do. But I think a lot of this that's happening, the movement of the Holy Spirit around the world is happening because there have always been a select few even here in North America, that have prayed the Matthew 9, 36 to 38 prayer. And I'd invite you to join me in looking at these verses. And if you would, as we read this together, would you stand? This, uh, Jesus uttered these words at the height of his personal ministry. This is about the middle of the second year of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. And um, he's uh, performing many, many miracles and healing diseases, preaching the kingdom of heaven. He's about to send out the 12 disciples on their first journey throughout Israel. And he utters these words, beginning in verse 36. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, go recruit. No, that's not what he said. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. You may be seated. This was in the year 28 AD. Jesus is devoting his ministry to the region around North Galilee. I don't know if you uh, have ever been there or visited or seen what North Galilee looks like, but in Jesus' day, it was loaded with all kinds of rolling hills, and of course, it bordered the Lake of Galilee. That's where Jesus was. This was, as I mentioned, the second year of a -a three-and-a-half-year ministry, and he spent the whole year in that region, healing diseases, casting out demons, and calling his disciples and teaching the people. That's what Jesus was doing. Here are some of the things, chronologically, that happened during this period of time. He returns to Galilee from Jerusalem, and then he, his disciples have this miraculous catch, catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee. He cures Peter's mother-in-law and some others. He heals a leper. He heals a paralytic man. Lots of miracles in here. He calls Matthew to be his disciple. He heals the man, uh, man's shriveled hand on the Sabbath. 
that got him into trouble. Uh, He healed many by the lake. He chose his 12 disciples during this time. He preached the Sermon on the Mount that you can find in Matthew 5. He heals the centurion's servant. He raises from the dead the son of the widow of Nain. Uh, His feet are anointed by a woman that was forgiven of her sins. He heals a blind man and a mute demoniac. His relatives think he's mad, and so they grab him. Um, He calms a storm. He raises Jairus' daughter from death. He heals two blind men and casts out demons. And then he gives this instruction to pray for laborers, followed by the sending out of the twelve. Herod hears that Jesus uh, is John raised from the dead and starts to go into a panic. The twelve return, and immediately Jesus feeds the five thousand. He walks on water, and he performs healing and healings at Gethsemane. This is the context in which Jesus utters these words. Towards the end of this year, Jesus reached the height of his popularity among the people. He's popular with the common people, probably because of the things that he has done for them. He has met their needs. He has healed their diseases. I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that they had a clear idea of who Jesus really was and what he came to do. The reason why uh, Jesus was performing all of these miracles was to authenticate his identity as the Son of God sent from the Father to earth to provide a way of escape from the sin of all people. But I'm not sure that that message, even though it's in the Old Testament, was clearly communicated to these folks. The only place in the region of Galilee that did not receive him well with a prophet's welcome was his own hometown of Nazareth, and they thought he was a crazy guy. Jesus is going through all the cities and villages, according to this, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He basically cleaned out illness from this North Galilee region during this year period that he ministered there. Now, I've put in red the words of these verses that provided some surprises for me as I studied this uh, and worked through it, worked through this passage. That's why some of these words are in red. It says in verse 36 that seeing the people... Did I miss something here? No, I read the first part of the background. Okay. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And some of these words are very interesting. For example, the word compassion is a very strong emotional word. In fact, it is used very rarely in Scripture and only of the Father and of the Son. It's not used of human beings. Now, that does not mean that human beings cannot feel this level of compassion. But what it does say to me is that what the Father feels for humankind and what the Son feels reflecting the Father's own emotions is very strong. He has a love for you that causes him to act in ways that maybe, given other circumstances, we anyway would not react. The word compassion in Greek is actually a combination of two words. One is an expression of anger, 
And the other word is an expression of sympathy for victims of a tragedy. So you heard last week of the uh, train wreck, and you knew that there were some people killed, and many of them were injured, and you probably had sympathy for them. You probably, if your heart was soft, was you were asking yourself, is there anything that I can do to help or, or to give comfort to the families of these people? That's the second of these two words. The first would be anger over who caused this accident, you know, Was the uh, conductor drunk? Was he uh, going too fast? Uh, Was it the workmen that weren't maintaining the rails? Well, what caused this accident? And there's anger there. That's the combination of these two words. Anger over the circumstances plus sympathy for the victims. And that's what God feels for us, for all of mankind, through every age. He is angry at the circumstances that have caused us to be separated from him because of our sin. He's angry because Satan rebelled against him, was expelled from heaven, became the prince of the power of the air here, tempted Adam to walk away from God and to serve him. And because of that, you and I have been born into sin. And we are separated from God until we put our faith in the only thing that can restore that relationship and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the anger that God feels. But he also feels sympathy for you. He understands your circumstances. He understands where you are and where your heart is, even though you may be still shaking your fist in God's face and rebelling against him. And he has provided for you and for all of us, for all of mankind throughout history, a way of escape, a plan of redemption. And that's why we send missionaries, emissaries around the world to articulate the message of hope that there is a way that you can escape from your circumstances and from your present life of sin and become restored have a restored relationship with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus also felt compassion for the 5,000. That's recorded in Matthew 14, 14 and Mark 6, 34. It's the same word. He felt compassion for those people because, like the ones here in Matthew 9, they were lost, had no direction, didn't understand their own scriptures because their religious leaders had not taught them well and didn't have, a, have any way of knowing how to restore that relationship with God. They thought they could do it through their own works. So why would Jesus feel compassion for these people? Was it because of their illnesses? I don't think so. Was it because they were poor and were suffering because of their poverty? I don't think that's the issue either. I think he felt compassion for them because they didn't recognize their Messiah. He was right there in their midst, and they didn't understand who he was. And he, they certainly didn't understand his eternal purpose, the reason why the Father had sent him to die on the cross and suffer and pay the, the eternal uh, price for that sin so that you and I could be redeemed and have our relationship with the Father restored. They didn't understand that. They were not well taught. Their leaders had let them down. Their religious leaders had misrepresented 
the scriptures and taught the people that that the Messiah that was coming would restore Israel to its former glory. And so they were looking for a Messiah that was very different from the one that actually arrived. Even though Jesus performed all of these miracles, they were saying in their minds, he looks like a Messiah, but he's not doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so there was a total misunderstanding and disconnect between what they thought the scriptures taught and what they were witnessing. So the response to this was that they uh, they were distressed and harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So what's Jesus' response? He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Do you realize that that's a condition that's been with us since Jesus' day? And even today, even with the the phenomenal growth of the evangelical church around the world, there are still lots and lots of people and pockets of people in places that have not been reached with the good news of Jesus Christ. They don't know it and understand the gospel message. So this situation is still with us. That's the need. Who were the harvest? Were they needy people, people that were sick? Is that Jesus' target? Or people who needed to be encouraged? Was that Jesus' target? I don't think so. The people that Jesus is after are those who don't yet have not yet put their full trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Peter referred to Jesus as the ark that will carry us through the waters of judgment. But the people that Jesus is after are the ones who have not yet gotten into the ark by putting their faith in him alone. Who were the laborers? Well, definitely in this context, it was Jesus. He was doing all the healing and all the preaching. Uh, In chapter 10, he's going to send out the 12 to go throughout Israel and heal the sick and uh, cast out demons and preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there's another labor force there. Yep. But he said, not go recruit, as I misread the scripture earlier. That's the answer of most of our mission agencies. We see opportunities. We see people who are ready to respond to the gospel. And so we say to our mobilization departments and our various missions in North America, go recruit because the need is great. Well, we got the need identified correctly, but the solution is not to go recruit. Jesus gave us the best solution of all. He said, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And here are some more surprises. The therefore... There's always a reason why the word therefore is in the text. It connects the verse that it introduces to a previous context. And in this case, the previous context is the fact that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what's our response to be? To be beseech or to beg the Lord of the harvest to thrust out more laborers into his harvest field. The beseech is also a strong and very emotional word. It means to beg or to plead. Now when I pray, I ask many things of the Lord from time to time. I will ask him for the health of, uh, to restore the health of people that I know are sick. 
But when I really began to feel in the very depth of my heart and being the need that many people around the world have to hear the gospel. And I get on my knees and sometimes tears come. That's begging. That's pleading with the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers into his harvest fields. Jesus didn't suggest that his disciples recruit more workers. Rather, they were to plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers. Now, the reason why that is a better solution than going and recruiting is because there is a limitation to what we can do without the Lord's involvement in it. You remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus has got his disciples around him. They've just come back from ministry in the countryside and they've seen people get healed and demons cast out. They've been preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. They come back to Jesus. I imagine they were pretty excited about seeing what God, what the Holy Spirit had done through their ministry there. And uh, Jesus... Jesus goes practical on them. He says, there's 5,000 men here. That's excluding their wives and children, probably somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 people, and they're all hungry. They don't have anything to eat. And so the disciples kind of dry up and, okay, what are we going to do about that? And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And uh, the text doesn't tell us this, but I kind of suspect that you know, from the way the story goes, that Judas, who was the team treasurer, opened the purse and there was nothing in there. And everybody had their head down because they didn't know how to give 15,000 people anything to eat. How are we going to do this? We don't have any resources. And, you know, when I was in the Philippines, and I, we were there for 23 years, and, and I would hear over and over and over again from pastors and, and, and denominational leaders, Eric, we cannot plant all these churches. This is not possible. We have nothing to plant them with. We, don't, we are poor. Don't you understand that the Philippines is a poor country? We have no money. So I took them to the feeding of the 5,000. And I showed them how they were just like those 12. And what did Jesus do? He found a little boy's lunch, five loaves, two fish. He started breaking them, blessing them, looking up to heaven. And bow and behold, 15,000 people were fed and were satisfied, according to the scripture. And there were 12 baskets left over of the pieces. See, when you and I look into our wallets or into our talents or our abilities or our natural capacities, it isn't adequate for the need in our world. There's no way that you and I are going to reach 5 billion people on our planet by ourselves. But when Jesus is in our midst and he's multiplying the little that we can give and making it go further beyond anything that we could even imagine, then things begin to happen. It's amazing what God can do 
with just a little when we look to him rather than to our own capacities. And that's why Jesus did not say go recruit. He said, beseech the Lord of the harvest to thrust out more laborers into his harvest field. Because he understood, he realized that it cannot be based on our capacity. It can only happen, we can only reach our world for Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit is involved in it. He is the source. He's the one who moves people to respond from the heart. Send out is also an interesting word. It's a strong word. It means literally to throw people out. So when you and I pray, we are to pray that the Lord of the harvest would thrust out laborers into his harvest fields. It's a violent word. If Mike were willing to serve as my example so I could illustrate this, I won't ask him to do that because I respect him, I'd I'd grab him by the back of the neck here and by his belt, and I would throw him out the back door. That's That's the meaning of this word. But I want to caution you, that's how we are to pray, but that is the work of the Lord of the harvest. That's not your job to throw people out. In fact, you may not realize it because you're probably reading your Bibles in English, but there are actually four words in Greek that are all translated to send. This is one of them in in Matthew 9.38. There's a very different word in Acts chapter 13, verse 3. You remember that in Acts 13, the five elders of the church had gotten together And the Holy Spirit had said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work for which I have called them. And so they heard this prayer. They got the response from the Holy Spirit. There was nothing left for them to do. So they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul. And then they sent them out, according to your English translation. The word there is very, very different than the one in Matthew 9.38. The word in Acts 13.3 is the word to release, to let go. Now, because I've seen this happen in churches all over the world, I think the way this works is like this. When we pray the Matthew 9.38 prayer, the Holy Spirit works in the congregation and starts stirring up hearts to reach new people, to minister to new populations, perhaps even to go to another country or to another culture to reach and learn their language and culture to reach them with, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they, they, the people, when they're being stirred by the Holy Spirit, they get antsy. They want to go now. Don't make me wait. But they're not, they may not yet be fully ready. They may, may need some additional training or experience. They may need uh, to find uh, ways of supporting themselves while they're doing this. They just can't get up and go. They may have children they need to consider. And so we need to talk through those issues. But there comes a day when they are ready, when they are fully prepared, and it's time for the church to release. So if I'm right in the way I understand this, your job is to pray the Matthew 9.38 prayer and be ready to release those in your congregation whom God is moving into new ministries.
It's the responsibility of the Lord of the harvest to stir people up and to thrust them out the back door. That's his job, not yours. So if you're not happy with Mike as your pastor, you can't throw him out the back door. That's not, uh, he's not directed that way. Okay, we've covered that. Uh, what happens when God's people do not pray this Matthew 9:38 prayer? What's the result? Well, consider the story of Marco Polo. Marco Polo and his uh, uncle and father made it all the way to Mongolia. And uh, while there in Mongolia, Chinggis Khan said to them, send people back, go back to your country and send people to us who can teach us the scriptures. We don't understand them. And so Marco Polo and his uncle went home. They went to the Vatican. They made an appeal to the Pope. And they said, uh, we want to take as many priests as we can with us back to Mongolia to teach the people. They're open. They're ready. Well, after six years, only, three, only eight priests responded. Only eight. So the eight started off, and on the track from Italy to Mongolia, they lost six of them. Six of those priests got frightened by what they were encountering, and so they turned around and went home. And eventually only two arrived, and by the time they arrived, the Mongolian people had found... Uh, other ways of explaining their realities, and so they were not as open to the gospel as they would have been had God's people responded sooner. And so we lost Mongolia and uh, Mongolians for I don't know how many generations, but from the day of Marco Polo until 1991, when the next wave of missionaries went in, was able to go into Mongolia, and now there's a fledgling church there about... 0.2% of the population of Mongolia is evangelical today. General Douglas MacArthur, right after the victory over the Japanese in 1945, made a strong appeal to the churches of America to send missionaries. And a few went. Mostly servicemen who had fought against the Japanese, and so they understood their context and situation and felt compassion for them. And so they went, but it was a drop in the bucket compared to the need in Japan. And what was the result? Until today, the far majority of Japanese people have been closed to the gospel and are not willing to listen and don't understand it. That's what happens when we don't pray the Matthew 9.38 prayer. What happens when God's people do pray the Matthew 9.38 prayer? Well, back in the early 1800s, there were eight students... Um, I've forgotten the university where they were, but they uh, decided to have a prayer meeting out in the middle of a hay field, and it started to rain, so they all took cover under a haystack. And they, cu- they promised each other that they, would, um, they were going to serve the Lord in missions and go cross-culturally. And they started to pray the Matthew 9.38 prayer, and they made that a habit for several years afterward. And the result was the strongest, most numerous student missions movement in the history of the United States. That's what happens when God's people pray the Matthew 9.38 prayer. Whoops. And today, God's people around the world, God's people in North America, have been praying the prayer for new workers, Matthew 9.38, 
and uh, expecting probably that God would respond by sending more Americans. Do you realize that before 1980, 80% of the world's missionary workforce came from the United States and Canada? Did you know that? And just since 1980, we've experienced a tremendous change so that now the world's missionary workforce is coming more from other countries than the United States and Canada. OC has been a beneficiary of that. As I mentioned, we now have a global alliance involving 11 different nations. And over 65% of our personnel come from countries... Or our, uh, 65% of our personnel are carrying passports from countries other than the United States. That's the growth that we are experiencing because we have prayed the Matthew 9.38 prayer. So what happens to a local church when it faithfully prays the Matthew 9.38 prayer? Well, first of all, new ministries spontaneously generate. And sometimes they happen in ways that we can't predict. Pastors begin to pull out their hair trying to keep up and trying to give leadership to ministries generated by the people. And they don't always know what the best way to do that is. What happens when a local church faithfully prays this prayer? Governing boards struggle to figure out how to pay for it. Back in 1980, I was the missions pastor just up the road here at the Grace Brethren Church in Long Beach. We had 157 young people in our congregation that wanted to go out as missionaries. And I took this statistic to the elders of our church, a church at that time that numbered about 5,000 regular attenders on Sunday morning. And the elders said, there's no way we can pay for this, so stop it. I said, my answer was, how do I stop it? This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This isn't me. But that's what happens to a church. There's this struggle, you know. Okay, how are we going to send out all these people? How are we going to make all this happen? How are we going to fund these ministries? But the result is that new people get saved, new needs are met, and even whole nations are discipled through those whom we send. That's what happens to a local church that faithfully prays this prayer. Now, my observation in participating in a number of different prayer sessions and with groups all over the place, some church-based, some not, and particularly even in my own mission, when we get together to pray, we pray that all the physical needs of our people would be met, people who are sick would be healed, people who have cancer would be healed. We pray for people to finish their doctoral dissertations so they can graduate. We pray for people who need jobs. But there are two things, and and by the way, all of that is good. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray those things. But there are two things that very often are missing from our corporate prayer. One is to pray for people who are lost and in need of a shepherd. But Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he says, I beseech you, brethren that you pray with all thanksgiving, with all exhortation, with all, I can't remember all the words that he uses, I pray 
I, I beseech you to pray. And then he creates this parenthetical statement that we seem to camp on for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life. And so you hear very frequently that we need to pray for all of our government leaders. But that's a parenthetical statement. The next verse, verse 3, says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And very frequently we don't pray for people that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. Years ago, I started the habit of going through the newspaper. Now I watch CNN and Fox News and some of the other major news channels for my news. And when I run across an item, I will pray that the Lord will send somebody to meet the needs of those people. So this morning, I was watching CNN... And uh, they were talking about a new strategy that our Joint Chiefs of Staff have developed for combating ISIS. And uh, I, I got to thinking, you know, there might not be anybody in the midst of these Joint Chiefs of Staff who can articulate God's purpose in this or help them see how their, their warring or their war strategies might even contribute to what God wants to do among ISIS. So I said, Lord, could you please send somebody who can get their attention and have their respect to deliver that message, and if there's anybody in that group that has not yet put their faith in Jesus, would they understand the gospel enough to be able to take that first step? That's how I pray. That's combining Matthew 9.38 and 1 Timothy 2.1-4. Praying for people and praying that the Lord would send those to those people who can communicate with them well. For all the progress that the gospel has made in our world, the needs are still great. Don't think we're done. There are probably, best estimate, about 5 billion people on our planet that still have no hope. They're distressed like sheep without a shepherd. They are the object of God's sympathy and compassion for them. And we need to pray that the Lord would send out more laborers into his harvest field to reach those people. That's our job. That's how you can contribute to world evangelization right from Orange, California. So I want to invite you to pray with my wife and I for all those people of the next generation who are going to take our place. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would stir them up and thrust them out to meet the needs of our world today. Let's pray together. Father, I want to pray for this church. I thank you for them and for the years that they have faithfully been involved in missions and faithfully thought about the people even in this community who are unreached and have yet to put their faith in Jesus. I thank you, Father. They have this concern as a corporate body 
I thank you for the leadership that has set the direction of this church. I want to ask you to bless them for the commitments that they've made. I pray, Father, that you would meet their financial needs of this church because they have given generously to a number of different missionaries over the years, and they have been faithful. They have proven themselves faithful. And now I ask that you would help guide them into making a habit of praying this Matthew 9.38 prayer. I pray, Father, that 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 prayer would characterize this church and they would see many, many more great things happen as a result of their, their praying. I pray for the leadership of this church that they would be ready to meet the challenges and the tasks and start to tackle the issues that are going to arise as new ministries begin to multiply. I pray that this church would reach this community, the city of Orange, Southern California, all of California, all of the U.S., the world, for your glory. Honoring your name before men and building the kingdom of heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.